Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to launch a new podcast, I Bounce Back. This podcast is going to bring you stories about people who, well, managed to bounce back from the hardest, the most challenging and the craziest situations in their lives. And they managed to find their path. And in many cases, they are helping and inspiring others. This podcast is going to be a bi-weekly podcast, so please don't forget to subscribe and listen to us every second Wednesday. Before I introduce our guest today, let me quickly introduce myself. My name is Indrea, and maybe for some of you my name might sound a little bit strange. Well, it is a Lithuanian name, although it's somehow also the name of the Hindu god called Indra. It's pretty much the same name. I have been working as a journalist and media producer and a radio documentary maker for about 10 years. And with documentaries, I discovered that I really, really love telling stories and I do not enjoy that much news reporting. So I just decided to dive in in what I like And I hope these stories of really inspiring people will inspire you and give you some hope as well. Without further ado, let's start it. This is episode number one and Justin's story. I was so delusional that I spent like $348 or something on a lie detector test to try to cheat it because I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I didn't want people to view me as a criminal. That reconciliation or acceptance didn't begin until I was in prison. Justin Paperny is a federal prison consultant. He prepares defendants for their time behind bars and after. But more than 10 years ago, he was that person behind bars. He was a successful stockbroker, but because of some unethical and bad decisions, he ended up in prison. While serving his term, he had time to reflect. He started a blog and later wrote a book, Lessons from Prison. What kind of lessons did he learn? Let's listen. When you get to prison and you're around a lot of hopelessness and despair, it's very easy to fixate on everything you've lost, your money, your reputation, your career, your dignity, uh, in some cases, family. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so easy to fixate on what you've lost. In my case, I wanted everything back again. I wanted to be reputable. I wanted to be successful. I wanted my family to, to, to be proud of me. I wanted to make my victims whole. But how could I couldn't do that unless I understood the motivations behind my choices, and uh, I, if I didn't invest the time to understand why I broke the law. So you ask, you know, how did this business begin, or how did it grow? It started from the inside of a federal prison, wondering what the rest of my life would look like because of this this federal prison sentence. And I knew that while I, I was there for a year, which in the totality of my life is nothing, it's it's, it's a blip. I knew if I wasn't prepared to come home. And if I couldn't articulate why I ended up in federal prison, it would amount to a life sentence. And you should know about 20% of the more than 500 people that reach out to White Collar Advice every month are home from prison. And many of them serve short sentences like I did, six months, a year, two years. 
but they're continuing to struggle. And those struggles relate in part to how they served their time in prison. So this business began from the inside of a federal prison, working alongside my partner, Michael Santos, wanting to become better, knowing that um, I didn't want this to define the rest of my life. And, and that's why I was so productive every day in, in, in prison. I didn't waste a moment. In your blog, you've said that uh, you come from a privileged background and you have decided to focus on the white collar crimes and clients who come also from a privileged background mostly. Uh, why, why did you choose this particular group? Well, he, I, I, to be clear, I did have a, a, a privileged background. I've said and written for years that I hit the parent lottery in life. Uh, a lot of opportunity, education, coaches that held me accountable as, a, as an athlete and baseball player through USC. So really no excuse to ever have broken the law and end up in prison. That's something I told the judge, by the way. And I think the judge appreciated that honesty because a lot of defendants did not have the opportunities that, that I had. And it was a distinction I had to draw. When I was in prison, uh, I identified most with a, with a white-collar executive. I was a stockbroker who had, at one point, more than $300 million under management. I was making half a million bucks a year. I, I lived a high life. Um, I was successful. I had hundreds of millions under management and hundreds of clients before I ever broke the law. So I just figured I better identify with a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, an accountant, uh, a CEO, um, who was had had similar success. Frankly, some of my clients have had more success than I'll ever have um, in, in a number of areas of their life. But I just better identified with them and we understood each other. We understood you know, how hard is it to hire a lawyer? How hard is it to hold a lawyer accountable? How hard is it to build a new career, manage your online reputation because of Department of Justice press release? So there was kind of a brotherhood. Uh, so that's why I focused initially on the white collar defendant. Our company, of course, helps all de defendants. We have n a number of brands from prison professors and resilient courses and white collar advice. So there's a number of brands, but I chose to focus on the writing of a white for a white collar defendant because that was me and that's what I knew best. And I offered and still offer advice that would have helped me while I was fighting my case for three and a half years. Now, let's go back to the beginning of your story. You have mentioned in your blog about the existence of ethically gray areas in your previous work as a stockbroker. What kind of things are we talking about? Before I ever broke the law and facilitated a crime on behalf of a, a client who was managing a hedge fund, I had begun to make some bad choices with my senior business partner. When I lecture on ethics and white-collar crime, I talk about this fraud triangle, uh, pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. No person can end up in federal prison or break the law unless they succumb to this triangle. So years before I broke the law, I had some fightings with my senior business partner. And I was getting in at 5 o'clock in the morning, leaving at 10, 5 to 10. I was putting on weight, neglecting my fiance at the time. All I did was work. And I didn't feel rewarded for that hard work. I didn't feel appreciated. I didn't feel acknowledged for my hard work. And because of that hard work, I felt I was, I was worthy of a raise. I had brought in a client that was generating six figures a month in revenue. And my partner and I had a split that enabled him to get 75% of the production and I got 25%. And my senior partner said, no, no raise. 
So it was very troublesome for me to have someone take credit for my hard work. And rather than leave the partnership or wait it out, I began taking commissions from him to which I wasn't entitled. So when we talk about this broad triangle, there's the pressure to be rewarded, pressure to get a raise, pressure to get a thank you. Then I began to rationalize this unfairness. This is the way the industry works. It's all snakes and people out for themselves and there is no team players here. Then the opportunity, the opportunity was finding a glitch in the system at Bear Stearns to take some commissions that were not mine. So I went down that path and took commissions I had not earned for a while and it really set the stage to make you know, even more terrible decisions down the road, which I ultimately did. And it's, it's why I ended up in federal prison. I think in your book, uh, I have read about one particular incident when you had a meeting with your clients and you realized that, that they were committing fraud. Uh, however, you did not report it. That meeting was the first time I actually saw fraud. Uh, in other words, I was at a meeting with my senior business partner. My client, Keith, the hedge fund manager, was there. At that meeting was also Keith's client, a gentleman named John, who was thinking about giving money to Keith, my client, the hedge fund manager. At that meeting, my senior business partner asked John, why are you thinking of giving millions of dollars to Keith, the hedge fund manager? And John said, well, I've seen performance of the hedge fund. Performance sells itself. And when he said performance sells itself, everyone at that table knew that Keith, my client's hedge fund, was down like 100%. Everything, every dollar my client raised, he lost. A million would come in, he'd lose it. A million would come in, he'd lose it. I mean, he was a horrific hedge fund manager. I mean, if he went long, you should go short and vice versa. It was awful. So we knew when this prospect said performance sells itself, he was being misled. He was being lied to. Surely he was investing money uh, under the idea that this hedge fund was successful and it was not. So as I wrote in Lessons from Prison, and as I mentioned in my lectures, that was really an aha moment for me. Uh, rather than stop the fraud, fire the client, address this discrepancy, we chose to turn the other way. We chose to pretend we didn't hear anything, live like the figurative monkeys where we just didn't, you know, like the ostrich with the head buried in the sand to stick with the, the, the cliches here. And as a result of that, we, this investor ended up investing in the hedge fund. He later lost money. And what I engaged in was security fraud. I deserved to be punished and lose my license. And, and I eventually went to prison. But did it have any emotional effect on you knowing that it was a fraud and by not reporting it, you were also committing a crime? I think I had gone down a path. I had been going down a bad path for so long, a path of never evaluating my decisions, rationalizing that this is the way the industry works, focusing on some of the good things I do versus the bad. I did not pay nearly enough attention to the meeting. If I paid any attention to it, it was simply to try to protect ourselves from any of the the fallout that would come, to try to put processes in play, processes in place to ensure if this ever blew up, we would be protected. But I never thought 
as embarrassing and frankly as disgusting as it sounds, I never stopped to think how my actions were impacting others, how my choices were influencing my community and, and frankly investors in this hedge fund. I was very short-sighted. So no, I'm embarrassed to tell you I didn't really give thought to how my actions would influence others. Uh, I simply tried to protect myself from any fallout. And what did happen after? As I understand, a couple of months after the truth came out. That's right. In December, I think that meeting was in like September of '04. In December, that's a long time ago. I lived 16 years or so. And then in December of '04, uh, investors in my client's hedge fund began sending letters to my branch manager at UBS, questioning performance of the fund and inquiring into UBS's role. That was December of 04. And then in January of 05, the investigation really blew up with federal with the FBI, the Securities and Exchange Commission. I had lost my job at UBS and everyone kind of begins to go in their own direction to try to protect themselves from from any fallout. And, and you asked earlier about why white collar defendants, the reality is at this stage, what I call the post-defense stage. The post-defense stage for me was the day the FBI found out about this fraud, the day the FBI began to speak to investors, the day they began to speak to UBS, the day they began to speak to my senior partner and later co-defendant, that's when you draw, all defendants should draw a line in the sand. They know or they're going to find out what do you do moving forward. I began making terrible choices after I knew the FBI got involved. I didn't own it. I hired a lawyer. I lied. I met with the FBI. I lied. Well, you even lied to a lie detector. Yes. I was so delusional that I said, I'll spend like $348 or something on a lie detector test to try to cheat it because I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I didn't want people to view me as a criminal. I didn't want people to view me as someone that exploits others for for my own gain. So I, I sought to protect that reputation or as best I could. And as a result of the terrible post-defense conduct of lying and misleading and really feigning ignorance to this fraud, I made matters worse. I, I've had the privilege of lecturing at the Academy in Virginia, training agents, and Paul Bertrand, the agent that arrested me, who invited me to speak, has said, had you been more honest with us when we interviewed you, we'd have probably not prosecuted you. So what you do after you're under investigation or after you break the law really matters. And it's part of the reason some defendants who do it well don't go to prison. Some defendants like me do it terribly go to prison. So you said earlier, why white collar? Why defendants? Why did you start this business? Because I did it all wrong. And you'd be stunned how many defendants do it terribly. But what has ultimately led you to acknowledge that you committed a crime and you needed to face the justice system? It didn't, that reconciliation or acceptance didn't begin until I was in prison. I will acknowledge when I pled guilty, I was still a little bit in denial and didn't fully understand my role or my conduct. I pled guilty in part because I feel like I used to have my lawyers compelled me or told me I would never win a trial and I had no choice. And then in prison, I realized, uh, you know, where my short-sighted thinking had got me, where fixating on the end rather than the process had gotten me. And I just didn't want this, as I said earlier, to, to define the rest of my life. 
And I knew if it, the only way it would not define the rest of my life was if I fully began to accept responsibility. If you don't understand where you've been, it sounds cliche, you can't create a path moving forward. So I, I spent those early months understanding how I ended up on the wrong side of prison boundaries. It was very enlightening, but also a little humbling as well, because you realize you have to embrace how far you have fallen. And that's humbling. It's difficult to wake up in life and say, I'm not supposed to be here. It's like that line from Shawshank Redemption, that prisoner saying, I'm not supposed to be here. It's very humbling to wake up and say, wow, I'm in federal prison. My friends are building businesses and getting married and having children and traveling the world and contributing to society and providing value to their community. And I'm in prison. How did I end up here? It's very sobering to embrace that. It's part of the reason some choose not to and simply blame and excuse their conduct. For some that may work, for me, it, it was not a path that I wanted to follow. Before we go back to Justin's story and learn how he decided to write a blog while being in prison, I want to invite you to visit our website, ibounceback.net, where you can find more inspiring stories. Also, click on our social media icons and connect with the I Bounce Back podcast on different media platforms. And now let's go back to Justin's story and the day when he had to self-surrender. Well, a part of me was actually pretty excited to self-surrender because I felt like I'd been in prison for three and a half years before I went. Okay, so fighting my case, the wondering, the waiting, the unknowing, how long will my sentence, how long is it going to be? It's, it, in many ways, it's hard to, to start your life when you don't know if you're going to get sentenced to prison or for how long. Uh, while I was somewhat apprehensive about surrendering to prison, because we see what is so sensationalized on prison through Shawshank and more just the new black and cool hand Luke, I, I was a little apprehensive about what it was going to, to be like. But I was also excited because at least every day in prison, you get credit for time served and you have a clearly defined release date. So I was equally nervous, but also excited to get this thing started. And once I got there within a day or two, I realized that if I adjusted well and uh, understood some do's and don'ts and, and minded my business and avoided pitfalls, I knew that I, it was an opportunity like I would never have again. Uh, I was incredibly, I was you know, 30, 40 pounds heavier than I am now. Keep in mind, I'm 45 now, I was 33. I knew it would be an opportunity to recalibrate my mind and my health. And it was like, a, as I wrote in Lessons from Prison, it, I knew pretty quickly I could use it as a sabbatical to prepare for richer experiences upon my release. You spent your time in prison to really rethink how to reshape your life. And you even started writing a daily blog from a prison. So how did you come up with the idea and how did it work? How did everything start it? My business partner, Michael Santos, is a prolific author. He had been in prison 22 years when we met, and I was aware of his work before I surrendered. He received an undergraduate and master's degree in prison. Uh, one, of the, one of the best prison books of all time is called Inside Life Behind Bars in America. He got a publishing deal from prison. So we formed a close friendship, and it really inspired me. And I knew that um, I had to create a new record. 
If, if someone Googled me, it was going to show my Department of Justice press releases. Employers would not really find me hireable because of my conviction. I can no longer get a license. So Michael helped me embrace this underdog status of thinking differently, and that included owning my crime and conduct. So rather than just reading all day, I went from reading to documenting, as Michael taught me to do, my journey through prison. So on etikallc.com, where my prison blogs still live, and in October of 2008, I made a commitment via my website to, I made a commitment to my family that I would write a blog with pen and paper every single day until I went home. I would send these blogs uh, with no internet in prison, no email at the time. I would just write them and send them home to my mom. She would put them on the internet. And I was chronicling my experience through the federal prison system. And within, I don't know, a few weeks of this blog, I began to get 20, 30 letters a week. One week I got like 80 letters from people across the country thanking me for providing a glimpse into this world of confinement. And I'm writing about like random crazy stuff like flush as you go and you know, you have got to stand on this side of the shower and there's this old prison code and what is the prison hustle and what can you pay for and what you can't pay for. And, uh, everything from if you have to masturbate in prison, this is where you go. And if you're having a bad day, this is what you do. Then I would get into philosophical and ethical stuff. Like I read Socrates and Plato today, Allegory of the Cave. This is what I learned. And this is what a typical day looks like for me on the inside. And I just interviewed a guy that hated his lawyer and he felt like he was ripped off for 500 grand. And let me walk you through how to hire a lawyer. So like I'm writing all these blogs and people loved them. And it was crazy that even though I was in prison, my mind was alive and active and working, even if my body was confined. And the time was really serving me. And the blog became the harbinger for my first book, Lessons from Prison, uh, which was written over the last four or five months of my prison term. And upon my release, that book and those blogs and what I have learned helped pave the way for this career as a national speaker on ethics and white collar crime, but really federal prison consulting. And I think leading this industry uh, to, uh, in, in a way that prepares defendants for sentencing and prison and ensuring this experience doesn't define the rest of their life. Well, I think you might have all possible strategies in the world, but the environment and the atmosphere still affects you. And the environment in a prison is definitely not the nicest one. Was there anything in particular that helped you to deal with anxiety and helped you to go through hard days? Two things, perspective and, and gratitude. When I was a defendant, really, even in my 20s, I tended to fixate on what I didn't have. I would compare myself to people that, that might have had more, and I didn't appreciate all I had. Even when I was a defendant, I, I used to focus on everything that I had lost. And in prison, I began to appreciate what remained. I began to appreciate that I had a family that still loved and stood by me. I still had my youth, I had my health. I had my mind and a work ethic and a predisposition to, to want to become better. I still had a home that I could return to. So I had more, frankly, than most. So that was very transformative for me in prison to focus on what I, what remained. So gratitude was key. And two, perspective. People have been through worse. So it's very easy as a defendant to think about how your life is imploding. But it helped me 
I can't tell you that I'm terribly religious. I tried to get into the Jewish services in prison. I struggled. In fact, I only went once. For me, it was perspective, recognizing that people like Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, had endured worse. Or one of the most impactful books I read in prison was uh, Malcolm X's autobiography. He went to prison as a pimp and a thief, couldn't read or write, and educated himself, and despite being a very uh, a character that is, you know, has a lot of good and bad to his name, I identified with a man who educated himself in prison, or Mandela's enduring you know, 27 years. So for me, perspective was a very big deal. And that helped me get through days where it was um, tough. Now, more than 10 years later, it looks that you bounced back extremely successfully. But was it really easy? Because the stigma, especially when you have to restart everything, is there and people probably were suspicious. For me, I got some, I've gotten a lot of great messages over the years, but also some nasty messages. And last year, within like a one or two month span, I was on Fox News six or seven times. I did Dr. Phil and I had this, this cover article in the Washington Post. And I got some messages that said, oh, you're just some rich you know, punk from USC who served a measly year. It was very easy for you and, you know, serving a year in a minimum security camp and what a joke and you don't know what real struggle is. So it's, it can be very easy for people to dismiss my success. And I'm totally, totally fine with that. I don't like to talk a lot about the process coming home because it sounds self-serving. Frankly, relative to most, it was very easy Uh, But I will quickly say that, yes, in my own own world, (laughs) it was difficult coming home. I came home in 2009 in the worst economy since the Great Depression, a probation officer that did not want me to be a federal prison consultant, who did not want me to speak, who wanted me to pay my restitution as quickly as I could. It was incredibly difficult. And I think the record that I created in prison enabled me to hit the ground running. That's what I tell all prisoners to do. Don't do nothing in prison and then come home and suddenly, boom, here we are. No, you've got to use every day in prison preparing to come home. And that's what I did. So that was cold calling law firms or cold walking into law firms to give away my book. Um, You know, beginning to consult as much as I possibly could, speaking for free, calling, cold calling professors. Can I share my story? So, yeah, it was hard. I think I went nine months when I came home from prison. I didn't pay for health insurance because I didn't have the money. Uh, My probation officer took away my credit card, wouldn't let me use it anymore. So how was I going to produce my book? Uh, You just get through it. But I I continued to wake very early at probably four o'clock every morning. And I said to myself, someday content that I'm developing is going to help people. And I just have to stick with it. And I stuck with it day after day after day after day. And I began to gain some traction. And yeah, it was, it's still a grind. It's hard work. Uh, But I believe in what I do. I'm passionate about it because I believe with the right plans, defendants can get shorter prison terms and have more productive experiences and come home stronger. What is fascinating is that your experience really shows that you can learn a lesson and make the best out of it. Remember your first day uh, coming to prison and then the last day when you left the facility? The 
from the, the first day as my 21 month old son walks into my office. So forgive me for a moment. This is what happens when you're, when you're quarantined in California and I'm working from the home office. Uh, you know, the, the first day, if anything, I probably underestimated how much was possible from the inside. And I, you're just fixated on getting through it. And you have all these prison thoughts in your mind because we've seen so much prison on TV. Then on that last day, and I wrote about this in my last prison blog, I was so excited to get home. I knew that I would see the world differently because of my experience. I knew that it was frankly like the best experience I could have had. And that might sound odd, but if you're introspective and if you think and you read and you analyze and you're willing to learn and you're open-minded, see a lot of prisoners aren't open-minded to the fact that life can be better. And if you're not open-minded, you can't make any progress in life. So I, from that first day to last day, I was two totally different people, right? I surrendered to prison, fat, miserable, bloated, pissed off, angry at the world. And I left optimistic and grateful with a newfound perspective on life. That was Justin's story. Justin Pepperney, he wrote several books. You might want to check out his book about his experience in prison, Lessons from Prison. It is available online on his website, whitecollaradvice.com. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Check out our second episode, which is gonna tell a story about a journey from the Hollywood industry to peacefulness and self-discovery in Europe. If you have any questions, please go on our website, ibonsback.net. You will find our contacts there, as well as blog posts and all other updates. Stay safe, stay home, and I see you next time. Ciao!